Lord, that is the song of our hearts this morning, that we look to you. We come to you in faith, believing that you will supply our need in terms of grace and light and strength, truth, correction, comfort. Lord, we come confessing that it's on your word that we rely, not on our own efforts, not on the personality of any leaders, not on some collective momentum that we try to muster up as a church. We look to you, we rely on you, we wait on you. Lord, I pray that you'd give us a hunger for your word today, that we would delight in your truth, that we would love it, submit ourselves to it. Lord, if there is any coldness among us today, if there's any hardness of heart, if there's any discouragement and weakness, I pray that the truth we've just sung, that you came to make a way, and that it's Christ's sacrifice that redeems us. I pray that that truth, that gospel reality, would warm and soften and strengthen us so that we would approach you to receive all that you would do in our hearts this morning. So, Lord, do your work in us today for your glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. It's good to be back with you today. You can go ahead and open again to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 32. Uh, Thank you for those of you who prayed for me and my family. We had the chance to uh, get away for a few weeks and see the Grand Canyon and a few other things, and it was a great time together, but we missed our church family. We missed being here I'm thankful for the faithful ministry of Stephen Parkin, who taught and preached and shepherded in my absence. I'm thankful for Philip Johnson, a friend of the ministry, who came and preached one of those Sundays. And what I love about this church, what I've told many people about this church that I think is, is somewhat unique, is that this church loves God's word and has a hunger for it. And what that means is it really doesn't matter who stands behind the pulpit. What matters is what comes from the pulpit. And if it's God's word, this is a church that's ready for a meal. And I see many of you, um, not that I'm literally seeing this, but you're here with your napkins tucked into your collars and your, your fork and your knife ready to go, and I'm excited to jump back into Exodus 32 with you. Um, we all have different lives. As I look around the room, we have different experiences. We're from different places. We've seen different things, done different things. But there's a number of experiences that are universal, It's part of what it means to be human, things we all share in common. And perhaps one of the most painful things that we can all relate to, something that's an experience we all share, is the crushing reality of personal sin. We know what that feels like. We know what it feels like that moment when you realize your own failure. There's a very real cloud of shame that descends. There's a a weight of guilt and a bitterness of the soul. We've all experienced that. But here's the question. What do you do with that? How do you deal with that? How do you cope with that? How do you try to fix it? Where do you find comfort? What do you do with your failure, with your sin? The book of Exodus tells us in chapter 32 about a great national failure. The making of a golden calf at Mount Sinai and the false worship that took place there. And as we pointed out a few weeks ago, this story is not just about what happened. It's a story about what happens. We can see ourselves in the reflection here. It tells us something about who we are and and the way that things work in our own lives. And because of that, there's much that we can learn from this story. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, the Apostle Paul referencing this generation of Israelites and this specific failure at Mount Sinai, Paul wrote, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. There's something for us to learn from the failure at Mount Sinai, and even from the way that they tried, in some ways unsuccessfully and in some ways successfully, the way that they tried to deal with their failure, the way that they reacted and responded when they realized their grave error. Exodus 32 records a catastrophic spiritual failure. Their hearts turned from God. It records a catastrophic leadership failure. Aaron's fear and his compromise was nothing short of an abdication of his God-given responsibilities. 
And we see the catastrophic sin itself, that the people bow down and worship a golden calf. And they believed that this was the gods. These were the gods that brought them out of Egypt. This was a violation of God's law. And it was essentially abandoning their covenant with God, a covenant that they had just made with him there at that mountain. As we saw two weeks ago, it was only three weeks ago, I guess now, it was only through Moses' intercession, you can see this in verses 11 through 13, that Israel was spared a complete and immediate destruction. God said, stand back, that my wrath may burn hot and I may consume them completely. I'll start over with you, Moses, make a new nation out of you. But Moses had successfully averted that crisis. He had stood before God as their mediator, as a representative of the people. He'd appealed to God's glory, appealed to God's promises and says, this isn't what you promised. This isn't the best way to show the greatness of your name to the nations. And God had heard his prayer. But now Moses has to go down and stand before the people. He had stood before God. Now he has to stand before the people and represent God to them. Moses had to go do some cleanup. He had to deal with the aftermath of the golden calf. So what I want to do this morning is walk through this narrative and sort of tell the story. And then at the end of this story, I'd like to draw out four ways in which sin must be dealt with. If, we're, if we are going to deal with sin rightly, I think there's four specific actions we can sort of draw from this story that I think will be helpful for us. But let's walk through the story together. The setting we find here in verse 15 for our, our portion today is that Moses is heading down the mountain. <clears throat> you look in verse 15, it says, Then, this is after the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken, after Moses had prayed, after God had informed Moses about what was going on, out of Moses' sight, down at the base of the mountain. It says, after all this, then, verse 15, Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. I think in order to understand Moses' actions and his interactions, both at the top of the mountain and at the bottom of the mountain, we have to remember his role, that he is a mediator. He had stood before God at the top of the mountain, and his role there was to represent the people before the Lord. That's why he had prayed on their behalf. But now he's about to stand before the people, also as a mediator, but now he's representing God to them, specifically representing the God they had rebelled against. And Moses records for us that he was carrying with him these tablets. These are the stone tablets that contained the Ten Commandments. There's two of them, presumably a copy that represented Israel's copy and a copy that represented God's copy. This is a, a legal contract. This is, these are covenantal documents that were intended to be placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And we're told explicitly that these tablets are the work of God, that he wrote them. And this is important because we need to understand that the people had not broken Moses' law. They had broken God's law. Moses was not the lawgiver, as often as we refer to him as such. God was the lawgiver. Moses was not the designer of this covenant, and it was not their relationship with Moses that had been fractured. God was the engineer of this covenant, the author of it, and it was the relationship with God that had been fractured. Their rebellion was ultimately not against Moses. It was against God. He picks up Joshua along the way. Back in chapter 24, verse 13, we're told that Joshua is Moses' assistant. And he had gone partway with Moses on his journey up to the top of the mountain. This is 40 days prior. Moses has been up on the mountain meeting with God for 40 days, 40 nights. And so he rejoins Joshua on the way down. And together they're talking because they hear that there's this huge stir back in the camp. Joshua thinks it's war. Moses says, no, it's not war, it's singing. A singing that is so drunken, so raucous, mixed with disorganized shouting and reveling and the screaming of the people down below that it was easily mistaken for a battle. Not that there's anything wrong with singing. Remember, the people had gathered together and sung God's praises on the shores of the Red Sea. 
But this is a different kind of song. It's not the organized singing of a worship service. These people are out of control, and it's a huge mess. So Moses arrives, and we find that he performs this somewhat shocking prophetic act in verse 19. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. It's interesting here, Moses knew what was going on already because God had told him. If you go back up early in the chapter, God had said, go back down because the people have corrupted themselves. They've made a golden calf and they've bowed down to it and worshiped it. So Moses knew what was going on. He had heard about it, but now he sees it. And in verse 10, as he takes in this scene, we read that his anger burns hot. And just to remind you, if you look up earlier in this chapter, this is reflective of God's response. God's wrath had burned hot against these people. We see this in verse 10 and verse 11. And now Moses, likewise, is outraged by what he sees. And you might say, why now? Why does Moses get angry now? He didn't get angry at the top of the mountain. Previously, when God's wrath had burned hot, Moses had appealed to God in prayer. He had interceded on behalf of of the people. But know this, God, or Moses rather, was not interceding. He was not praying for them. He was not seeking to divert God's wrath because he thought their sin was no big deal. No, that's not it at all. The reason that Moses had interceded and prayed was because he was representing them before God. He was fulfilling his role as their mediator, but he never accused God of overreacting. He did not say, God, you shouldn't be angry. No, he never said that. His appeal was based on something else altogether. It was based on God's reputation and on God's covenant promises. But Moses never had minimized their sin or said that God shouldn't have been angry about it. And Moses, likewise, is not overreacting now. Remember, Moses has sort of switched gears. Now his job as mediator is to represent God to the people. And so, therefore, Moses' righteous anger is a reflection of the righteous wrath of his God, the God that he represents. This anger is righteous because it does not stem from Moses' pride. It, does not, it is not rooted in Moses' concern for himself or his reputation. It's rather a zealous passion for God's glory. In breaking the second commandment and breaking the third commandment, both of which were violated in the, the golden calf incident, these people had in essence rejected their God. They had turned their back on his covenant and therefore they had broken his whole law. So what does Moses do? Well, he throws down and breaks the tablets. Again, we ask the question, why? Why would he do this? Is Moses losing his temper? Is this like, you know, the out-of-shape guy in slow-pitch softball who punches the dugout wall, you know, when he, when he gets out? No. This is not a loss of self-control. This is not some fit of rage. This is intentional and purposeful. As well as being a mediator, Moses fulfilled a prophetic role. And in the Old Testament, God's prophets often performed physical acts that signified their message. And that's what this is. These tablets represented the covenant. They were the embodiment of God's agreement with Israel. And this covenant had been broken. Forty days before this, at the bottom of this mountain, these people had promised loyalty and obedience to God. Everything that the Lord has said, we will do. That was their cry. There had been sacrifices made. The blood had marked the, the altar and the blood had been sprinkled on the people and this covenant had been sealed right here at the bottom of the mountain. But now, right here at the bottom of the mountain, they were worshiping a false god. They had broken their promise. And so here, at the bottom of the mountain, visible to all, a public act in a prominent place, the same place where this covenant had been forged, Moses now shatters the stone tablets because the covenant had been broken. We see here Moses' reaction as he comes down. There's anger and there's grief and he shatters the stone tablets. But now he starts to deal with the situation. And he does three things. And the first thing he does is deal with the idol itself. We see this in verse 20. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire 
and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. The tablets weren't the only thing that Moses destroyed. He had an appointment with this idol, and he boldly destroys it. He does this publicly, not secretly. And he does it decisively. It's not a democratic process. He doesn't ask anybody's permission. He doesn't poll the audience. If you remember, his brother Aaron had been intimidated by the demands of the people. They had gathered against him. There's a note of hostility in their request when they said, Make us gods. They will go before us because we don't know what's happened to this Moses character. It's been 40 days and we're done waiting. Aaron had been intimidated by them, quick to do what they wanted. What a stark contrast here between Moses and Aaron, between the fear of man and the fear of God, between a failed leadership and faithful leadership. Moses gets down to business. He burns it, grinds it to powder, throws it in their water supply and makes them drink it. You might say, that's kind of weird. Why would he do that? What does this mean? Well, I think Moses, um, putting the the ashes and the the ground-up particles of this idol into their water did a number of things. First of all, it vividly pictured the spiritual contamination that this idol had brought upon their community. They had to drink and internalize this sinful image. What a picture of what idolatry is, a spiritual contamination. And it was also forcing the people to acknowledge their part in this sin and to participate in its elimination. He says, yeah, I burned it and I smashed it and I chucked it in the water and you're gonna drink it. You're gonna help me get rid of this thing. Forces them to participate. But secondly, I also think that in forcing the people to drink, Moses is also making sure that there's no going back. There's no chance of this idol, even the valuable gold of the idol, ever being reclaimed and reused. There's no chance that this thing, that this actual idol would ever again become a temptation in any sense. It was dissolved down to the molecular level and then dispersed far and wide. That's why he's making them drink it. But I also think finally there's another reason he did this, is that Moses is defiling this idol. The people had bowed down and given honor and reverence and worship to this statue. They had given it the credit for bringing them out of Egypt and honored it with the title of being their God. But this supposed God was now destroyed and now it was ingested so that it would soon, in a day or two, be eliminated as human waste, excrement by the people who had worshipped it and given it honor had bound down to it. So Moses is completely not just destroying, but also defiling this idol. So Moses has dealt with the idol. Then he turns and deals with Aaron in verses 21 through 24. Aaron had been left in charge, and leaders are always held accountable first. Moses said to Aaron, verse 21, What did this people do to you? that you have brought such a great sin upon them. So Moses holds Aaron responsible, and he calls it a great sin. But Notice how Aaron responds. Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. As Moses talks to his brother, he assumes that there had to have been some sort of great coercion, that the people had twisted his arm or or something to get him to do this, because Aaron knew better. He knew better. If you go back a few chapters, Aaron had been among those who had gone up on the mountain with Moses. Remember when it says, when the covenant had been been formalized, it says that those elders of Israel, that they ate and they drank and they beheld God. They saw his glory. They saw this amazing vision of the God who had saved them, the God who had just given them his law, the God with whom they were entering into covenant. Aaron had seen it with his own two eyes. He knew better. And so Moses assumes, man, something might have, must have happened because, Aaron, you know better. 
And so as he interrogates his brother and asks him what happened, rather than an honest confession, Aaron plays the part of Adam in the garden, blaming and dodging and excusing. First of all, he blames the people. He says, Moses, don't get angry. You know how bad these people are. You know the evil that is in their hearts. First he blames the people. Then he basically blames Moses. When he quotes what the people said about this man, Moses, we don't know what's become of him. He's basically saying, Moses, you took too long. What am I supposed to do? It had been 40 days. So he blames the people. He blames Moses. And then finally, he just makes an excuse. He makes himself the the victim of some miraculous circumstances. He says, I just threw the gold into the fire and out came this calf. It's amazing how literal Aaron was when he was recounting the words of the people. He quotes them nearly verbatim, word for word, what they had said when they came and pressed him to make them a god. But now when he remembers his part in it, all of a sudden the details get really fuzzy. Somehow his memory is no longer nearly as accurate. It really was amazing to me studying this this week because in this whole passage, this is kind of the last time you hear of Aaron. We don't know what Moses said back to him. And amazingly, Aaron doesn't get fired. (laughs) He's still the high priest of Israel after this. We find elsewhere in the Pentateuch that the only explanation for that is because Moses prayed for Aaron and God spared him. It's not recorded here. Uh, It is, I believe it's in Deuteronomy chapter 9, if memory serves me right, where Moses records how he prayed for his brother and God spared him. The only reason that Aaron would remain in his position is because of sheer grace, because he certainly didn't handle this situation very well. You can tell Moses almost turns away from his brother in frustration. It doesn't even record a response. Aaron, how did this happen? Aaron makes all these excuses. So Moses turns to deal with the people. See this in verse 25. The first thing he does is draw a line in the sand. It says that when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, there's more failed leadership by Aaron, to the derision of their enemies. It says then, verse 26, Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. The first thing he does is draw a line in the sand, and he calls for covenant loyalty. The people had collectively turned their back on the Lord. They had abandoned him. Now Moses invites them to reconsider. He says, who is on the Lord's side? He's just wrecked their God, wrecked their idol, completely destroyed it and defiled it. He's broken the tablets before them all. They know that this covenant has been broken. But now Moses stands up and he says, will you reconsider? Who will choose today to be loyal to God, who today will repent of their idolatry, who today will reconsider their relationship to the true God, the one who actually brought you out of Egypt. And he calls each person to make a decision. Aaron may be a failed leader, but the people are responsible for what they have done. Leaders are held accountable first, but the people who follow them are also accountable. And Moses is now holding their feet to the fire. Who is for the Lord? And the other thing that Moses does here, in addition to sort of drawing a line in the sand, Moses is also identifying with God, and he's leading with courage. Even if no one comes to him, Moses takes his stand at the gate. And what he's communicating to them is that, listen, I'm on the Lord's side. Whoever else is also on the Lord's side, come to me. He's calling them back into the fold. Moses has let them break loose, or Aaron, rather, has let them break loose, it says in verse 25, to the derision of their enemies. Moses sets up shop at the gate, and he says, let's get this organized. Whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. He's calling them back to God, back into the fold as he stands at the gate. And by standing at the gate and drawing the line there, he's demonstrating that what happens next, how they respond to his leadership in this moment, will demonstrate who is inside and who is outside. Who is choosing to remain separated from God and who's going to come and be reconciled to God and enter back into fellowship with him. It's a call for repentance and loyalty. It's a call for courage. And the third thing Moses does, so he draws the line, he identifies with God, calls them back. The third thing he does is communicate God's word. 
This is really what Aaron should have done. When the people come and said, came and said, make us gods that will go before us, he should have responded with, thus says the Lord. But he didn't. Moses, a faithful leader, does communicate God's word to them. Verse 27, he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel. He communicates God's word. And in communicating God's word, he communicates God's judgment. He says, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. These verses may seem shocking to us. That members of this community were deputized, told to strap on their sword, and to be instruments of God's judgment throughout the camp. But we have to understand that this, as shocking as it may seem, as unthinkable as it may seem, is a necessary step to preserve the covenant community. Spiritual unbelief, unrepentant idolatry, and rebellion was a cancer. A cancer, a spiritual cancer that had to be removed. It seems to be that the killing that took place that day, it's 3,000 men, was not an indiscriminate killing. It was targeted. We see a similar story in Numbers chapter 25 that took place uh, in the future. And in that situation, it's very clear that those who are put to death are the ones who are personally responsible, the ringleaders. It's clear that those who are put to death are those who refuse to repent, those who refuse to cross over and join the Lord's side, those who say, I still don't want to worship Yahweh. So it's not indiscriminate killing. It's not just thinning the herd. This is targeted. Those who refuse to repent must die. And we have to understand a number of things about this judgment. That number one, this judgment is commanded by God. This is not Moses' idea. Moses didn't say, here's what I think we should do. He says, thus says the Lord. This is God's word. It is God's judgment. Not only is it God's word, secondly, it's justly deserved. This is part of the covenant law. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 20, in the statutory laws that were given that showed how to enforce and uphold the Ten Commandments, it says, whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. And the people had heard that. Moses had read it to them in their hearing, and they had verbally promised all that the Lord has said we will do. So Moses is basically saying, hey, if we're going to return to God and follow him, we have to stop this pattern of breaking his law and start obeying it. And that means that there's people who need to be put to death. This judgment is justly deserved. It's according to God's law, and it's honestly less than what was deserved. A lot more than 3,000 people deserved to die. It's actually merciful that there was a stop to it. But notice finally that this judgment, as hard as it may seem, actually resulted in blessing for those who were repentant and those who were obedient. For the Levites who came immediately to Moses' side, their loyalty to God that day was demonstrated by carrying out these covenant consequences. And this was blessed by God. Their future priesthood was blood-bought. This was their ordination ceremony. It's pretty intense. It's a pretty hardcore ordination ceremony for the priests who would serve God. But we see a principle here that even in severe judgment, even in painful obedience, there is blessing for those who bow their knee to the Lord and humbly obey everything that God calls them to do. Moses has now dealt with the idol. He's dealt with his brother to a degree. He's dealt with the people. But Moses isn't done. The final five or six verses of this passage record not Moses engaging with the people any longer, but now he turns and goes back up the mountain to meet with God. There's a divine appeal. The idol's destroyed, yes. The people are dealt with. They're even sorry. And they've even removed the problematic people from their midst. 
But the most important work still lay ahead of Moses. They had to come to terms with God. Even though their sin has been forsaken, even though the people are remorseful, atonement is still necessary, and Moses knows it. He knows that they stand guilty before God. Verse 30, the next day, after this disciplinary judgment has been carried out, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Unlike Aaron, Moses is honest about what's happened. He says, you have sinned a great sin. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't minimize it. And unlike Aaron, he takes personal responsibility. He says, I'm going to see what I can do. He knew it was up to him to approach the Lord on their behalf because he was the one called to be their mediator. He alone had access to the mountain. He alone had an audience with God. So he says, I will go up to the Lord And he says, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. That little word, perhaps, is fascinating. Moses says, perhaps. Moses has a plan, but he wasn't sure if it would work. He says, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And I don't think that this word, perhaps, indicates in Moses' heart some sort of uncertainty as to the character of God. It's not that he's unsure if God is a merciful God, Or if God is a forgiving God. No, he's already seen God's mercy and God's forgiveness multiple times throughout Israel's short history. And throughout his own personal history. He knew that God would keep his covenant. But Moses didn't know how. He didn't know how this was to be brought about. Moses anticipated, and rightly so, that perhaps one could represent the many. Moses had been paying attention to the Passover and to the sacrifices. He understood this principle of a substitutionary sacrifice and atonement that could be made. He, he knew that it was possible that perhaps one could bear the guilt of the nation and appease the wrath of God. So Moses approaches the mountain again to face God. He demonstrates his grief as he speaks to the Lord. He returns to the Lord, verse 31, and said, Alas! This people has sinned a great sin. So he demonstrates his sorrow, and he's very honest. Again, he calls this a great sin. He makes no excuses. There's no spin at all, unlike Aaron, unlike Adam and Eve. And also, unlike Aaron, who distanced himself from the people, Moses identifies with the people. And unlike Aaron, who excused himself and tried to preserve himself, Moses actually offers himself. He says, alas, verse 31, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. There it is, naked and unadorned, the raw truth. But now, here's his appeal. If you will forgive their sin, and he he doesn't even finish the sentence. There's a humility here. He's just barely asking for mercy. Like, Lord, just, we need forgiveness. There's nothing else I can, I can even ask. But then he goes a step further. He says, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses puts his own neck on the line. He's seeking to somehow, if there's anything he can do, even, even to the point of laying down his own life, Lord, if there's any way to secure forgiveness from you, I'll do anything. There's undoubtedly great humility in Moses' attempt here because he wasn't guilty of this sin. There's undoubtedly great love that he cared about God's name and he even cared about the well-being of this rebellious people. There's a great willingness to sacrifice himself. And all those things are noble. All those things are great. But ultimately, God turns him down. Verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Thanks, Moses, but no thanks. To blot them out of his book is a reference to death. 
Ezekiel 18.4 says, this is God speaking, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. We're probably more familiar with Romans chapter 6, verse 23, where Paul reminds us that the wages for sin is what? It's death. It's death. Revelation 21, verse 8 speaks of a future judgment that is coming. It says, as for the cowardly, that certainly describes Aaron. The faithless, that certainly describes Israel. The detestable, that certainly describes their actions, this out-of-control party that was going on. As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, that one fits, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. God tells Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. God does not accept Moses' terms. And this answer should shake us. Moses is the greatest man in Israel's history. Moses is their greatest leader. Moses is the one through whom the law is given. Moses met with God face to face. He's the mediator of the covenant. Even Hollywood today is fascinated by this character, Moses. He's got multiple movies about him. But Moses, as great as he was, could not atone for these people's sin. He couldn't do it. But that does not mean that there is no grace here. As sober and severe as this is, I want you to read on just a little bit further. He says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. You you can imagine Moses' heart dropping, the sense of dread overwhelming him. But the very next words, but, but, here's some good news. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Moses makes sure that we don't believe Aaron's excuses there right at the end. Gets that little point in, the one that Aaron made. Um, There is good news here. Yes, Moses' request is denied. And yes, there's even further discipline coming for the people. We see that with the plague that is sent upon them. There are just some real-life consequences, some disciplinary action that is still to take place. But in the midst of all of this, notice that God affirms his intention to uphold his covenant to the end. He says, go and take the people, lead them to the place that I've told you about. What is that a reference to? He's saying, Moses, I'm not going to wipe these people out. And I'm also not going to abandon them. I'm going to take them to the promised land, the place that I told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about, the place that I've told you I was going to lead you and this people there. I haven't given up on that plan. God affirms his intention to keep his promises. They have a future with God. Despite their sin, despite the atrocities that had been committed, despite the flagrancy of their rebellion and their violation of God's covenant, They have a future with God. He does not consume them, neither will he abandon them. He repeats his intention to keep his covenant promises. Guys, that is grace. Unbelievable grace. And it's not a grace that Moses negotiated. It's not a grace that Moses somehow secured or like extracted from God because of his efforts. No, it has nothing to do with Moses' offer of offering himself in their place. It has everything to do with the character of God. It has everything to do with his grace. Everything to do with his promises. God promises that his judgment will not be abandoned. There is going to be judgment at the day of his visitation. But he doesn't dispense his judgment at this moment. His mercy is shown in his patience. He still intends to keep these promises. This is who God is. 
When Moses later, we'll see this in chapter 34, when Moses received the law a second time, God descended in a cloud. And he says in verses 6 and 7, as the Lord passes before Moses, he proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is merciful and God is just. And this creates a tension. How can God forgive these people? How can he let them continue? How can he renew his covenant with them if he's also just and they deserve death? How can this justice and this mercy coexist? If Moses could not secure forgiveness for them, if Moses wasn't the answer, if Moses couldn't make atonement, then who can? If not Moses, the greatest Israelite, then who? I'm glad you're asking that question. God didn't accept Moses' plan because God had a better one. He had a better one. As great as Moses was, Moses is ultimately pointing to something to someone who is greater. In the incarnation, God the Son, Jesus Christ, would offer himself as an acceptable sacrifice, as an effective substitute. Jesus is the one who is worthy. Jesus became a man to do what no other man could do, to make atonement for the sin of God's people. God's judgment will fall on this sin. But this sin is going to be lifted off their shoulders and nailed to the cross. Justice will fall. But in such a way that mercy can also be extended to the people that God loves. Hebrews 2.17 tells us that he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To make propitiation is to offer a sacrifice that is satisfying. To make an atonement that is acceptable so that the wrath of God is spent and there's no more left. Just as Moses went outside the camp and ascended the mountain to present himself to God on their behalf, Jesus would one day carry his cross outside the city, up a hill, a place called Golgotha. And there he would lay down his life on our behalf. And his sacrifice would be accepted by God. That was proven in the resurrection. God was pleased by the sacrifice of his son. There as our substitute, Jesus became sin and bore the fullness of God's wrath upon guilty sinners. Isaiah 53 puts it this way, that he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the the punishment, the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is how the justice of God and the mercy of God can perfectly coexist. That is how your sins and my sins can be forgiven without God compromising his justice, without God's law being somehow swept under the rug. Jesus did what Moses could not do and made atonement because Jesus is greater than Moses. While Moses was a man who had his own sins, Jesus was a perfect man entirely without sin. While Moses would lead them out of Egypt, Jesus rescues us from a greater foe. Slavery to sin and Satan and death. While Moses spoke the words of God to the people, Jesus is the word of God, the word made flesh. While Moses would give them the law, Jesus Christ came to fulfill that law. And while Moses would be the mediator of an old covenant, Jesus is the mediator of a newer and better covenant. And because he is fully God and fully man, Jesus is able to represent not just the nation Israel, but people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, the world itself. 
That's why Hebrews 3 tells us that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. In God's mercy, we come to the end of our text. We find that despite their sin, Israel is spared. They're not consumed. Israel is kept. They're not abandoned. Israel is disciplined. 3,000 people die and a plague falls. Sin is serious and sometimes there's real consequences. God will chastise and discipline his children. But in the end, we find that this rebellious people, at the end of the day, they've been purified, they've been restored, they've been disciplined. And God has shown mercy and their sin has been dealt with. Even if temporarily, and in the sending of Christ, their sin would be permanently dealt with. Friends, we started this by talking about our own sin and recognizing that our sin has to be dealt with and it must be dealt with rightly. What is it that we learn about dealing with sin from this story? I want to leave you with four requirements for dealing with sin. These are practical applications and we can understand the story and and think it's cool, but this is supposed to shape us. This is supposed to inform our faith and and give us a pattern to follow in obedience. So four requirements for dealing with sin. Number one, dealing with sin demands ruthless honesty. It demands ruthless honesty. Too often, we soft-pedal sin. We whitewash it. We call it something less than it is. We don't take it very seriously. We make excuses like Aaron we minimize our part in it and, and magnify other people's faults. Maybe you say, well, it's my parents and my upbringing. It's not my fault because no one showed me how to do this rightly. You don't understand the, the things I had to go through. Sometimes we say, you don't understand, it's the stress and the workload I'm under right now, the reason I've lashed out, or the reason that I've compromised, or the reason that I've failed. It's not my fault. You don't understand how exhausted and stressed and overwhelmed and stretched I am right now. You don't understand what he did. Yeah, I know I did this, but do you know what she said? Dealing with sin rightly demands ruthless honesty. And that's hard for all of us. It's hard for me. It's hard for you. But if we're going to deal with sin rightly, it demands ruthless honesty. We need to call it what God calls it. Not use excuses. Not invent our own terminology. We need to use the language of Scripture. Naked, unvarnished truth. Call it what it is. We have a negative example with Aaron. We have a positive example with Moses. He calls it what it is. It's a great sin. They made a golden calf and worshipped it. He pulls zero punches. King David in Psalm 51 also gives us a helpful model. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He says, what I've done is wrong. It's sinful. It's evil. If we're going to deal with sin rightly, it demands ruthless honesty. Honesty with God Honesty with ourselves to admit who we really are and what it is that we've really done. You will never deal with sin rightly and effectively, and you'll never be free from it until you are ready to be honest. True repentance, turning from sin, starts with confession, being honest. Secondly, dealing with sin demands complete repudiation. Complete repudiation. This is turning away from it, renouncing it completely, saying, this is what that is, that's confession, and saying, I hate it. I renounce it. I want to separate myself from it. That's repudiation. We see this with Moses' righteous anger. He didn't coddle it. He didn't justify anything. He was rightly indignant and outraged by the awfulness of sin. We see this in the godly grief that Moses displays. Do you think he was happy about throwing down those tablets? Forty days on the mountain with God receiving these these stone tablets written by his own hand. And he shattered them. There's grief there. I think we see this repudiation in Moses' call when he says, Who is on the Lord's side? 
Pick. You can't straddle the fence, one or the other. He calls for absolute loyalty to God. And that's really the only option. It's either absolute loyalty to God, which means repudiating everything else, or it's spiritual compromise. Those are the options. That's it. Those who are on the Lord's side, who are loyal to him, must have no lingering commitments to sin. He called the Levites. He said, leave your brothers and come to me, and then go kill some of your brothers. If they weren't serious about repudiating that sin, they would never take such drastic steps. Friends, sin is not something to be discussed and debated and analyzed as if it's simply some philosophical topic to banter about. Sin is to be repudiated. Sin is not something to be laughed at as if it is common and harmless. It is to be repudiated. Sin is not something to be tolerated as if it poses no threat to our enjoyment of Christ, to our worship, to our mission, to our fruitfulness, to our marriages, to our calling as a holy people. Sin is to be repudiated. You will love your sin or you will love Christ. You will serve God or you will serve money. You will walk in the light or you will walk in the darkness, but you cannot ride the fence. And if we're going to deal with sin rightly, it demands that sin be repudiated. Third, dealing with sin also demands decisive action. Decisive action. Moses took decisive action. He wrecked their idol. He drew lines in the sand. He declared God's word. He took action. Do you try to deal with your sin by hiding it in the closet, nursing it, kind of managing it, or do you take it out and put it in the wood chipper? Because that's the kind of action we must take. The Puritan John Owen famously wrote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You have to take decisive action. Moses says, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. To come to the Lord means you're joining a war against sin. There is no neutrality. There is supposed to be a militancy to our repentance and our pursuit of holiness a willingness to kill. But listen, the sword that we wield is not a sword against other people. It's a sword against self, against the old man, against the flesh, the sinful desires, the sinful nature, the the remnants of which we still drag around with us. Jesus in the New Testament calls us to do things like cut off our own hand or gouge out our own eye. Paul in his epistles calls us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. This is the expression of our loyalty to Christ, and this is the kind of decisive action that we must take. Some of you play around with sin, you let it linger. We all do. There's things we tolerate, and the longer we delay, the longer we delay, the further, are, the further off we are away from actually dealing with that sin. Take decisive action. But fourth, and perhaps most important, dealing with sin finally demands divine intervention. At the end of the day, there is way more than human effort that's needed to rightly deal with our sin. We can be as honest as we want We can renounce sin till we're blue in the face. We can spend ourselves doing every effort we can to rid ourselves of sin. But at the end of the day, if all that's done apart from Christ, it will be futile. It will be ineffective. It will be worthless. At the end of the day, we need the Lord's working in us in order to deal with our sin. We need the cross. We need the death of Christ. We need the work of his spirit. Otherwise, it's all human effort. And we will fail. We need a divinely sent conviction. Think about this. To deal with sin, where does it start? It starts with realizing that we're sinners. That's the work of the Spirit to bring conviction. That's the work of the Word of God, which He has provided, that shines the light on who we really are. God, through His Spirit and through His Word, acts like Moses talking to Aaron. He interrogates our conscience. And he invites us to confess, and he calls us to repentance. We need the work of God to lead us away from sin and towards something better. So listen, this begs the question, do you receive that kind of work of the Spirit? 
Do you lean into it or do you quench it? Do you listen to the conviction of the word or do you avoid it? Do you skip over those verses and try not to think about some of those truths because it's too painful? Do you humble yourself before perhaps some of the human messengers that God may send you? Perhaps it's a parent correcting you. Kids, I know nobody likes to get told that they're wrong and that they're in trouble. But that's God's messenger to you, to tell you. Do you receive that? Maybe it's a friend who points out a blind spot, who reminds you of a bad pattern in your life or exposes a failure. Maybe it's a pastor who tells you something that you don't like to hear, but you need to. Maybe it's a spouse, the one who probably knows you better than anybody else, who's willing to say things and say, I don't know if you realize this, but what you're doing is wrong. Do you defend yourself? Do you excuse yourself? Do you blow them off? Listen, we need God's divine intervention if we're going to deal with sin. And if we suppress the spirit, if we quench the spirit and ignore God's truth, we'll never be able to deal with sin. We have to receive that painful discipline of the Lord when he sends us conviction through his spirit, through his word, through his servants. We not only need conviction, we need divine atonement. We need the provision of a sacrifice in Christ. Listen, if you're attempting to climb the mountain, so to speak, and negotiate terms with God to somehow make up for your sin, you're doomed to failure. Only judgment falls when men try to deal with their sin on their own. Listen, you need Jesus. Being sorry is not what secures forgiveness. Being grieved over our sin will not fix what we have broken. Justice must be served, and there must be atonements. And with Jesus, here's the good news. There is atonement. There is no perhaps with Jesus. Jesus, not, Jesus does not say to us, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Jesus stands today, the lamb who was slain, risen and ascended into heaven with holes in his hands and his side, and he says, I have made atonement. It's done. It is complete. It is finished, and it is for you. Receive it by faith. There is no perhaps with Jesus, only a promise, a proven promise, a fountain of atonement opened at the cross for all who believe. And at the end of the day, us dealing with sin means we need forgiveness. And that means we need Jesus. And it depends not on our human effort, but on the perfect work of Christ. Sin must be dealt with. It must be dealt with rightly. If we're going to do that, dealing with sin demands ruthless honesty. It demands that we completely repudiate our sin. It demands decisive action. And foundationally, it requires a dependence upon Christ, his divine work. We need Jesus. Do you deal with your sin rightly? Do you? Have you? Are there things today that perhaps God is pressing his finger on saying, you really need to deal with that, and this is your chance? I hope that you will hear the call of Moses echoing throughout the centuries and off of these pages into your ears. Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Because those words are spoken by Jesus. Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Come in repentance. Come forsaking your sin, but also come to receive the grace that I can provide you. Come to Christ. Cast yourself upon his mercy and trust that his work secures your forgiveness with the Father. Whether you do not have a relationship with God, perhaps you're not a Christian, you can come to Christ today and receive that forgiveness. And if you're a Christian who's battling with indwelling sin, ongoing sin, today's your chance Deal with it. Take action. Talk to someone. Confess it. Call it what it is. And come to Christ. He can help you. He will cleanse you. He will forgive you. And he will change you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you for coming to this earth and taking on human flesh to die a death in our place and to rise again and secure forgiveness and atonement for all who believe. I pray that today any who don't know you would believe that they would come to you, that they would renounce their sin and trust in you as Lord and Savior. And Lord Jesus, for those of us who know you, who follow you, who seek to worship you, 
We confess this morning that we are sinners, that we still wrestle, we still fail. And there's times where we recognize our sin and the taste is so bitter. And the weight and the burden can feel crushing. Lord Jesus, for those of us who know you, I pray that today we would once again be reminded of the sufficiency of your sacrifice, that we would see the glory of your grace, and that we would come to you and faithfully submit ourselves to you and allow you to do the disciplining, the pruning, the chastising that purifies us, to to do the surgery on our hearts and to cut away those things that get in the way of our worship of you. Lord, purify this church. May we be a church that is willing to deal with sin and deal with it rightly as we keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Amen.